Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections. Welcome to the RhinoCast podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands. And balloons for the kitties. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. On this episode of the RhinoCast, we'll explore a summer of love that didn't happen in Haight-Ashbury and instead set the scene down on the Sunset Strip. Hang out for the inside story on Love Forever Changes, the 50th Anniversary Edition box set. Where are you walking? I've seen you walking. Have you been there before? Walk down your doorsteps, you'll take some more steps. What did you take them for? There's a private in my boat, and he wears his instead of medals on his coat. There's a chicken in my nest, and she won't play until I've given her my best. At her request, she asks for nothing. You get nothing in return. If you want, she brings you water. If you don't, then you will burn. You go through changes, it may seem strange. Is this what you're put here for? You think you're happy and you are happy. That's what you're happy for. There's a man who can't decide if he should fight for what his father thinks is right. There are people wearing crowns who screw you up, but they would rather screw you down. At my request, I ask for nothing. You get nothing in return. If you're nice, you bring me water. If you're not, then I will Hey, Dennis. I was 10 years old during the Summer of Love. How old were you? I wasn't around yet, but I was getting ready to be. Today on the RhinoCast, we're celebrating a rare Summer of Love release that didn't come out of Haight-Ashbury. No matter how old you are, you'll definitely dig the new Rhino 50th Anniversary Edition box set from Love Forever Changes. Four CDs, a DVD, and a hardbound book. Tons of rarities, including singles, a rare video, and the debut remastered versions on CD and vinyl. And we have three special guests to take us deep into the making of the record. Jack Holzman, founder of Electra Records, Bruce Botnick, producer and engineer, and music historian Ted Olson. We've set the scene. Let's go. Would you introduce yourself, please? I'm Jack Holzman, the founder and for many years chief executive of Electra, 23 years to be precise. 
love is all we need, so let's get into some love. In 1965, I was at the Newport Folk Festival. That's not unusual because I would go every year. That was the evening Dylan went electric with elements of the Butterfield Blues Band, which was my group. We were moving, I thought, towards something much different from folk music, which is what I had been doing for years, and then the singer-songwriters. And then there was a void between 1961 and 63 and 4, where the whole transition from folk music to singer-songwriters was working itself out, and there were not that many artists I wanted to record. So I was always looking for something to do. I did a 13-volume series of sound effects, which took a year to record and which are still in print and were remarkably productive financially, as well as great fun. I was looking for a new direction. And when Dylan went electric, that got me. But I knew that I was not going to find what I was looking for in New York City, not because it wasn't there, but because the majors were all over that. But they were less attentive on the West Coast. And that meant I should be out there looking for things. And I came out here, and as my practice, I would get a L.A. Weekly, which was a free magazine, and I'd go through all the ads. And I came to one that said love. And I said, what a cute name for a group. I ought to go check them out. And I went to Beto Lito's, which was a club. I once described it as the black hole of Calcutta with a cover charge. And I walk in there, and there is a band, the oddest-looking band I've ever seen, with a lead singer who wore faceted glasses of different colors and looked like something out of a very inexpensively made science fiction movie. But I was gripped by the music, and it was love. And by the end of the set, which was incredible because of the relationship that he and his music had with a packed room who had come repeatedly to see him because everybody seemed to know the material. I went backstage, introduced myself, made him an offer, said, I would love to record you. We've never done anything approaching rock and roll, but you strike me as a good place to start. And it was Hey Joe that got your attention. That was one of the tracks. But Hey Joe had also been recorded by others, so it was nothing new. But it was their approach to the music that I thought was interesting. The tale is told that you signed them after just missing out on Buffalo Springfield. Is that true? I saw Buffalo Springfield, and I made them an offer. But we had never done anything like this before. And Ahmed Erdogan with Atlantic had licensed all of those great albums from England that were polygram records, and he had the edge. Amongst independent labels, there was a great deal of fraternity and sorority, which was lovely. We helped each other. We were ruthless when it came to signings. Someone told me about the Dolby noise reducing thing. They were interested in getting them. I found out about them and bought them immediately because with singers like Judy Collins, I wanted no background noise whatsoever. So that was the kind of thing that we would share. What's the key to getting a good performance out of somebody like Arthur Lee, who struggles with internal demons, but has great artistic vision? How do you reconcile those two? You leave them alone. You know what they're capable of, and you tell them when there's a shortfall and why. But you never tell them what to do. You're always looking 
for that moment that you can build on with them. Something that you always want to tell an artist in the studio that they're doing right, but you know sometimes they can be doing better than right, and that's where you work with them. There's some great learning in life there in general, isn't there? Everything I learned about living, I learned in the studio. Tell the story about turning to Arthur Lee and saying, advance backwards. What I was interested in was the sonority of the instrumentation and the fact that everything was going to be drums or electrified instruments limited them in some way from softer moving material, which I thought would draw a larger audience to them. In other words, don't try to be a rock band, try to be a band. And the sonority of the guitar was not lost on me because I'd lived with it for years. And I knew how filling that could be if it was done right. We had no thought at the beginning of adding instrumentation afterwards, but when we heard certain songs, we knew it had to be done. You are so lovely. You didn't have to say a thing. But I remember that old man telling me he'd seen the light. He gave me a small brown leather book. Insisted that he was right. I only heard him slightly. Let's dig into Forever Changes because we're here to celebrate this incredible box set. The amount of things that have been curated here is just... There is everything. This is for the intense love fan who has lived with this album as a beacon in their lives. There are four CDs and several LPs, and it's all there. There's nothing left. What we're doing is we're providing a sort of sonic schematic of all of the elements that went into the final thing. So if you wish to parse the album, this is the way to do it. Bruce was truly tested on this record, wasn't he? Yes, he was. My relationship with Bruce was the first Love album. When I went into Sunset Sound Studios a couple of hours early before the session because I wanted to get the feel of the room and see the echo chamber and all of that stuff. Wanted to see the console, and it was pretty bare bones. It was the studio had been recommended to me by someone. They said it had a good chamber, which is always helpful. Uh, not that you use a chamber overtly, but it can round up a sound. If you know how to use it, know how to place the microphones in relation to the speaker, all of which I had learned over time, because most of my records I had made myself with my own portable equipment. Anyway, I run into this guy, and I think he's probably the assistant to whoever the engineer is. That that engineer hasn't shown up, but then he tells me he's the engineer. I think he was 19 or something, and he was fabulous. 
we had done the Butterfield album and we had done it three times before Paul Rothschild thought we had it right. But Bruce gave us a master course in how to record rock and roll. That was 1965, and we've been friends for over 50 years. Wow. And we've worked together. When this album originally came out, it wasn't as well-received or highly regarded as it is today. Back then, when you realized that was the case, did you ever think that maybe that would change in the future? I didn't know. Because if you weren't recognized within the first couple of months of the release of a record, the chances of it being picked up later on are really small. But I thought the record had longevity built into it. I was disappointed it didn't do more. But remember, Arthur was not a guy who would help us when it came to performing and traveling. I got him to New York once, but then he insisted on taking a flight back that very evening. The band would not leave Southern California. They turned down Monterey. Terrible mistake. And the Doors who wanted to do Monterey weren't invited, but Light My Fire was driving everybody up at Monterey nuts. So I want to geek out a little bit because one of the things I remember from when I was, and I'm a little younger, but I remember Electra was one of the first labels that put out stereo 45s. This new version, you've got mono mixes, you've got outtakes, you've got single mixes. The learning and the amazing things that come into your ears as a result of really hearing all these different versions and hearing because we all know that a single release for Top 40, you bumped up the bass, you did certain things there. You really get to live every inch of this album, not the marketing for this album, because I know you don't care about marketing. I know that oh, well. I care about an album's success. I've noticed over the years that art first and money follows. Tell us about the songs that really speak to you on Forever Changes. The song that speaks to me the most is Alone Again Or. So Alone Again Or was, I thought, the most compelling and inviting song of the whole group. Yeah, said it's all right. I won't forget all the times I've waited patiently for you. You know, I could say that so many chances were taken, that, that it's not that the vision wasn't recognized, but we're sitting here so many years later on Forever Changes, and now the vision is recognized. This album taking iconic status, is that representative in some way? I sensed about seven years ago that something was happening with this. And all you can do is shed a happy tear and watch it evolve. When I saw that The Independent, a great British newspaper that I read when I'm in London, had done a survey of the Summer of Love and had listed the 20 or 30 great albums, The Doors were number eight, Sgt. Pepper was number three, and Love was number one. 
That was just wonderful. And the album is embraced because it deserves to be embraced. We had it at the moment we were in the studio. Bruce and I were like diamond cutters. We were trying to get every edge we could and to get it as perfect as we could. And the wonderful thing about working with Bruce is that he's as crazy as I am. And we are only looking for excellence. And we know that about each other. And as a result, I think the things that we do together are are just more fun and have a higher result. It's a very safe record to listen to. And yet it is a mirror of a time that we really didn't understand. Thank you so much, Jack. It was really a treat to be able to sit down with Jack Holzman and ask him questions about Love Forever Changes. It's always great to hear about it directly from somebody who is so closely involved. Let's get even deeper into the making of this record with none other than its producer and engineer, Bruce Botnick. We're here to talk about Forever Changes. Yes. Your name, obviously, synonymous with Electra Records. That's a given. And A blessing. First time I ever recorded, or that I knew Jack, was on the first Love album, 1966. Really? Yeah. That was before The Doors. Wow. He came out, produced the album. I think we recorded it in like two days, which was not unusual. And then Jack went to New York. I mixed it. It was on four-track. Sent him the mono and stereo masters, and that was the beginning of a great relationship. So if you'll excuse my expression, let's set the scene a little bit. All right. And let's talk about... Buffalo Springfield getting in the way of the original man who was going to get involved in the album. When it looked like Paul Rothschild wasn't going to be involved. And I had a pretty good relationship with Arthur. Always thought that he was a great poet and always looked on the funny side of things. Anyway, it came time to do the album. And I had just finished Buffalo Springfield again and become friends with Neil Young. And this all came through Jack Nietzsche arranger for all the Phil Spector records. I knew Neil was going to leave the Springfield. And I said, hey, Neil, you want to come make this record with me with this band? So I went to Jack and I said, Jack, Neil is agreed. He'd like to do it. And I don't think we even got to one rehearsal. And Neil came back to me and he says, man, I'd love to do this with you, but I've got this fire inside me and I got to do my thing. So he left. And so I just took it on. That's what happened. I called Jack and told him, and he went, oh, I trust you. So this became your baby. It was my baby. This became your baby, and you are now engineer, producer, psychologist. Something like that. And many other things. The quote is that the band wasn't up to the task. They weren't. We went in and did a little rehearsing, at least Arthur did. And I went to one of the rehearsals, and the band was listless. You know, they weren't inspired for reasons that I don't know. And I said to Arthur, I said, Arthur, because I was doing a lot of sessions with the Wrecking Crew, which was the top band that backed everybody up here in town. We put a session together and they came down. The band sat on the couch in front of the console. Arthur went out in the room. Arthur and Johnny were And Johnny. There, right, yeah. And played acoustic guitars on it with the Wrecking Crew. And we laid down the tracks. Tell me about those few hours. Just give me... They were a quick, three-hour session for two songs. Which which the Wrecking Crew knows how to do, because they sit down, they get their charts, and they play. Yeah, usually they could do a song an hour. But tell me about 
looking over your shoulder at the band and the looks on their faces as they're watching their parts played. Was it motivational for them to get off their, you know what? It wound up to be motivational. At that time, they were unhappy. I swear that I saw tears, but Johnny Eccles has since said, no, that didn't happen. So I'm going to, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's okay. But it motivated them. And they went in and woodshed for a week. I mean, they all said, after the date, we want another shot at this. And by the time we were to record, couldn't get into Sunset Sound Recorders. So went down to Western Recorders, Studio One, which Barbara Streisand recorded there, Sinatra. It was a big, relatively big room. And we did all the tracks for the album in two days. And the only thing that I wish we had done was to go back and do the songs we did with Wrecking Crew. But Arthur was very happy with those, so we just kind of laid with it. Let's go back to The Daily Planet and Morgan, yeah. which were the two Wrecking Crew songs. Mm -hmm. If somebody's listening to this record, mm -hmm. where do you think there was a sea change? What would somebody notice? The Wrecking Crew are precise, obviously. You can notice it in the drums and the bass. Hal Blaine Hal and, and Carol, and Carol Kay. Yep. On her, the way that she played the bass with a pick. You can really, it really stands out. You recorded this in four to five days. That's how long it took to make records back then. That's yeah, but after we finished that, of course, then I did vocal overdubs with Arthur. And we went up and did some guitar overdubs with Johnny up at Leon Russell's house, which was great because uh, in the, his kitchen off the studio, he had a freezer full of ready-made scrambled eggs and bacon. And you just took it out and popped it into one of these newfangled microwaves and you had scrambled eggs and bacon. Would you tell the Benny Goodman story? Yes. When we were at Western Recorders, I believe Brian went down the hall and found Benny Goodman. He was doing a session there, and he invited him in. So all of a sudden, the band's out there playing, and Benny Goodman walks in, and he sat down. He spent about an hour, and he enjoyed it. You know, because you could tell Arthur's jazz influences. They were big time. Oom bop bop, oom bop bop, yeah, you know, you know, things like that. This many years later, you know, going back to all of this deep stuff that's in this new box set, it's not about standing the test of time, mm -hmm. is it? It's, it's about rediscovery of something that maybe was never discovered in the first place. This album, you listen to it musically and, and listen to the words. You know, Arthur, the snot is caked against my pants. It is turned to crystal. There's a bluebird up in the tree. I think I'll get my pistol. You know, I mean, it's just incredible images I don't want to say he was ahead. It was with the time because it's like when I got Angel, the Ranger, to come in to create the orchestral parts with Arthur. And in those days, sharing musical styles was not unusual. I remember we'd be doing a door session and down would come the mamas and papas or, you know, somebody sitting there just out of nowhere, the birds would come, David Crosby, and just hang you know, and exchange ideas. So by infusing a little bit of the Tijuana brass, which was very popular then, was not a bad idea. But we took more of a Spanish look than, you know, the Mexican. I love Ann Moore again, and I love Old Man. I love the whole album. It's really hard to define one song or that I dislike one song. There was nothing on the album that I didn't like. And you have to understand when you're, when you're in the zone and you're making an album, you're not thinking about the future 
or what didn't happen or what did. It's you're in the moment, and you just if you're doing it right, you're just responding to the music as it comes in, and you're taking it to the next level, and you have that moment. Arthur Lee was truly one of a kind, wasn't he? He was great. One of the great blessings of my life is to have been with Arthur and with Jim Morrison. I mean, the two of them were great poets, period. That was producer, engineer Bruce Botnick and his recollections recording Love Forever Changes. For our third and final guest, Dennis speaks with Ted Olson, music historian and author of The Liner Notes. Would you introduce yourself, please? My name is Ted Olson. I teach at East Tennessee State University. I grew up in Washington, D.C. and witnessed quite an active folk revival, so I was very interested in the ways in which musicians were kind of reinterpreting traditional music and taking it to new places kind of also became simultaneously a folklorist, and it led me to seek a lot more about the stories behind the songs, behind the music that I loved. This is going to be Dennis the Menace and Ted Olson's Love Forever Changes Myths versus Truths. It's like a game show. I'm going to read sure. the myth and you're going to tell me the truth. The whole story about this being an LSD movie soundtrack, according to a major publication that shall go nameless, it involved Bella Lugosi's mansion and supposedly a lot of drugs. Well, I guess the truth is drugs were part of the daily life of many musicians at the time. And Arthur Lee was famously, you know, at times a user of said substances. But I think the important thing to say is to consider Forever Changes as, in some ways, a drug-related soundtrack is missing the whole point. The fact is, Arthur Lee was a very imaginative songwriter, and one would guess that probably his songwriting didn't happen because of substances. It happened because of his imagination and his experiences, the things that he wanted to say and had to say. And it was a very difficult time in America, in the world, in Los Angeles. And Arthur Lee was saying what he had to say at the time. And the imagination was running wild through that Los Angeles landscape and those international happenings. And they're all kind of filtered through those amazing lyrics that he wrote. Well, I remember when you used to look so good and I did everything that I possibly could for you. We used to ride around all over town but they're putting you down for being around with me. But you can go ahead if you want to cause I ain't got no papers on In the middle of the summer, I had a job in a plumber just a fast for the ball. It was you who won the ball all day. I went walking along, honey, hand in hand. I'm thinking of your mama when you're thinking of another man. But you can go ahead if you want to, cause I got no papers on you. No, I don't. I ain't got no papers on myself psychedelic pop there was you know the word psychedelic in 1967 was applied to everything from bubble gum to tie-dye shirts to hairstyles but to position love forever changes as a psychedelic pop album well psychedelic pop conjures perhaps memories of 
some of the true hits of the day that made an effort to kind of pick up the mantle of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, released in the late spring of 1967. People remember Incense, Peppermints, and some other major hits of that era that overtly tried to capitalize on the kind of exotic sounds of Sgt. Pepper's and earlier Beatles tracks, such as those from Revolver. So the aspect of Forever Changes being seen as a pop album kind of misses the point in that the very fact was the album was way ahead of its time and was overlooked by most. Had it been concerned with producing a soundscape that met the zeitgeist of that moment, it might have sold better. I like to think of Forever Changes as kind of an art song cycle. Alternate mixes, backing tracks, them singing Wooly Bully casually in the studio, the Alone Again single mix, remixes. Just an incredible, incredible body of work to take this legendary record and bring it to us today. Tell me a couple of things that perhaps, Ted, you know even more then Jack and Bruce do about this record from your research. And, and let's go deep into a couple of particulars on this new release. From my vantage point, I suppose, as kind of a student of the album and a scholar who's kind of been compelled to tell the story of love and forever changes in the liner notes, I definitely can say some things about what people can look forward to on the box set. Some tremendous discoveries on the box set that are being made available in some cases for the first time, and in other cases the first time in a long time. For example, a mix that is presented in high definition on a DVD of that Bruce Botnick mix to be heard for the first time. And then in addition on that DVD is an extremely rare video that was made. It was early 1968. One of the producers and engineers who worked for Elektra Records at the time, Mark Abramson, made this video of love in their Los Angeles hangout. In fact, was a video that was promoting their single that was made in January of 1968, Your Mind and We Belong Together, backed with Laughing Stock. This was a one-off single that was really the last we heard from the classic lineup of Love in the studio before the band disintegrated. So it's a very important piece of the puzzle. It's a pioneering music video. You could see it that way. The mono mix. This will be the first time that people will have heard that mono mix in, what, 50 years. With the digital remastering, the mono mix will be pristine and no doubt will give people an opportunity to hear those incredible recordings monophonically, which will create some new discoveries about how the music was put together and also to revisit the whole concept of a monophonic release. Sitting on a hillside Watching all the people die I feel much better on the other side Why? Because it is so quick. I don't need power when I'm hypnotized. Look in my eyes. 
of course, a wizard at reissues, went and discovered some never-before-released backing tracks. And so those will be available for the first time for people's listening pleasure. I should say a quick word about the title of the album. Sure. The album was slated to be called The Third Coming of Love. It would have suggested that this was the third album, album in which they brought all their many strands together into one coherent statement. Somewhere along the way, Arthur Lee felt that really it was about these dynamic changes in society that were happening and in his own life as well, in his in his uh, songwriting. It was growing by leaps and bounds. And he needed a title that was more dynamic, and Forever Changes, of course, captures that. Apparently, the phrase itself came from a, a, a statement that was made. One way I've heard it said is that Arthur Lee himself used the phrase after breaking up with a love interest, and the woman had said, I thought you were going to love me forever. And he said, well, Forever Changes. Like a great artist, he took an everyday phrase used in an everyday context, but then used it in a completely different way that has continued to have major philosophical implications, both on appreciating this particular album. But beyond that, I think the phrase forever changes lingers in the culture. Howdy, buckaroos. Circle the wagons and sound the alarm. It's time for the Rhino Roundup. Hi, this is the Rhino Roundup. I'm John Hughes. And I'm Lauren G. And we are here today with the president of Rhino US, Mark Pincus. Hi, Mark. Hey, guys. How you doing? We are here to talk about something near and dear to Mark's heart. Probably, I would say it's fair to say your favorite band, right? Well, we're not supposed to have a favorite, but mm, (laughs) wink, wink. (laughs) But it is the offshoot of the Grateful Dead, Dead & Co., or Dead & Company, depending on how. What's the official title of this? It's written Dead & Co., but we call it Dead & Company. And who is part of Dead & Co.? Well, what's exciting is you have three members from the Grateful Dead. So Bob Weir on rhythm guitar, and then the two drummers, Mickey Hart and Bill Kreutzmann. And then the secret sauce is John Mayer comes in on lead guitar, and he's a fantastic addition to the Dead history. And the pianist and bassist, Jeff Comenti and Oteil Burbridge, both of them great players and add a lot to the mix. Okay, so you've got some bona fides. How many Grateful Dead shows have you seen? 73, but I count that truly as Grateful Dead shows, meaning from 84 to 94, the years that I saw them, and then all the post-Grateful Dead iterations over the last 23 years. That's actually much more than 73 now, but you don't officially count those. Right. So you've got some gravitas, I'd say. So what do you think about Dead & Co.? I think it's fantastic. I mean, it's really, having been there for the first two nights that they did in Madison Square Garden in October 20. 
15, right as the band was finishing their 50th anniversary year, everybody was sitting there very skeptical of John Mayer. And by the third song, he won the crowd over. And now it's amazing how good it is. So they're heading out on tour again this summer, starting in Massachusetts in the end of May, and then wrapping up at the Lockenfest. Yeah, this is going to be a great tour. They keep doing these two, three-month tours two or three times a year, and having just seen three shows down in Mexico, which is sort of a warm-up towards this tour, this band's on fire. They're playing better than ever, and I expect this tour to, like each of the previous tours, to just be better than its predecessor. Any standout songs you've seen? One of the real fun ones is The Wait, when they do The Wait, which they did down in Mexico and they did a couple of other times as an encore, where each of the four main guys will sing a verse, a Bob gets a verse, John gets a verse, Jeff gets a verse, and O'Teal gets a verse. So that's a real fun one, because they've got four great voices. Excellent. So if you're out uh, and about this summer looking for a good show that's going to, what, eat up three, four hours of your life? Yeah, these shows were about three hours and 50 minutes down in Mexico. And what's great about it is for a while, the dead were really bringing in, the post-Grateful Dead lineups were bringing in a lot of fans like myself that grew up on the dead and just, you know, anxious for more. Now we're actually getting new fans added. So at the Hollywood Bowl shows this past summer, it was ages from 15 to to 75. You have three generations there. I brought my daughters and they had as much fun, if not more, than I had. So this is a multi-generational thing now. Very cool. Well, thanks for joining us, Mark. And go check out Dead & Co. on tour this summer. Hey, folks. Thanks for tuning in and learning a little bit more about Love Forever Changes and the new 50th Anniversary Deluxe Edition out now. Rich, I know we asked a lot of questions today, but I have one more for you. What's that? Where can I get all the music I just heard? You can go to rhino.com. You can go to your favorite local record store. You can go to your favorite streaming service. You can go to your favorite download service. There's a lot of options. There are, and that's a good thing because I don't know about you, but I want more of that music. And last but certainly not least, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next RhinoCast. Executive producers for Rhino, John Hughes and Lauren Goldberg. Produced for Rhino by Pop Cult and Rich Mayhan Promotions. All rights reserved.